Huckabee is brought to you in part by Trivita.com, helping you experience greater wellness. Tonight on Huckabee, Jack Brewer and the call to end racial oppression. I learned that, you know, through God, we can all come together because, you know, that breaks the, bar- the barriers of race. Forgiven felons are finding a future. Sometimes he's going to deliver us out of something. Sometimes, man, he loves to partner with us and walk us through stuff. And country artist Steve Warner joins us. That's Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. And welcome to our Huckabee show from the theater in Hendersonville, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Hey, we're planning on having a limited audience back as soon as we can and slowly return to normal. Maybe that'll happen later this month. But events of late have been anything but normal. I mean, I haven't seen such chaos and anarchy since my teen years back in 1968. The country is divided over many things, but on some things, we are actually united. We're united in our belief that George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis policeman and that he and the officers who stood by deserve to face criminal charges. We agree that the people of Minneapolis and the rest of the country, for that matter, ought to demand accountability, not just for police brutality that resulted in the death of one black man, but the utter failure of a city and police department that allowed the officer who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for almost nine minutes to even continue wearing a badge. I mean, after all, this guy had had 18 citations violating police policy. How many times must a police officer prove to be unfit before the leadership of his department and his city step in and fire him? We agree that people have a constitutional right to protest peacefully and to call attention to a wrong and demand it be addressed. And I'd like to believe that we agree that looting and rioting burning down businesses and attacking police officers, as well as innocent citizens, is the behavior of uncivilized savages, not citizens of a free society. As sincere and grief-stricken protesters gathered, their just cause was hijacked by thugs who systematically turned protests into excuses for a crime spree. Not only did the rioting dishonor the life and death of George Floyd and his family, Those who engaged in the lawless and violent actions acted with selfishness and reckless disregard for the lives and property of others. It's hard to say that one is concerned about the rights of George Floyd if one disregards the rights of all the other George Floyds who shouldn't be subjected to random, vicious, violent attacks. America's got a unique kind of government, and the most basic unit of our government is not federal, not state, not even local. It's self-government. We were created to be a free people whose liberty exists and is preserved largely by our governing ourselves to do right for our families, communities, and even strangers. We weren't designed as a nation to need a lot of government. And if we self-govern, we live by the words of Jesus. Do unto others as we would have others do unto us. That's really the only law we need. Treat others like we'd like to be treated. None of us wants a brick thrown at our head. 
so don't throw a brick at the head of another. None of us wants our property destroyed or stolen, so don't destroy or steal someone else's property. None of us wants to be disrespected for our race, our appearance, our social standing, or our economic status. So don't disrespect someone else. Our problems as a nation are not a skin problem, but a sin problem. It's not color, but character. No person is better than another, nor more important because of race, face, grace, or place. America was built on the notion that we are equal, not because we're the same, but because the same God created us and gave us unalienable rights. Respect of each other, it's got to start with the respect of God. And if we don't believe there is a God who created us all and who made us all equal and who loves us all unconditionally and will hold us accountable for how we treat each other, we're destined for a breakdown in our society and our civilization is doomed. So when people ask, what's the solution? They're usually thinking of the political solution. But my friend, politics is the result of our problems, not the cause. And therefore, it's not the answer either. The real solution, and it's one I hope we can also come to agree on, is that we have a spiritual disease more deadly than coronavirus, and that without the vaccine of God's grace, we're going to die individually, and we will die as a nation. We can't fix what's wrong with a brick in our hands or more police on the streets, fire raining down from rioters, or even tear gas raining down on looters won't resolve what's wrong with us. It's going to take God's love raining down on us as we repent and we start loving each other as we love ourselves. My first guest tonight is the mayor of a great American city. And as most cities throughout the country grapple with protests, sometimes violent in the wake of the George Floyd killing, Miami has had relative calm. So what are they doing differently? And what are they doing right? And can other mayors learn some lessons about how to ease the unrest? We welcome Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. Mayor, delighted to have you here. And I'm gonna get right into what are you doing differently in Miami that has given that city a relative calm versus so many other places across America? There's so many different things that we've done. Uh, we're a city that is no stranger to civil unrest over the years. When my father was mayor in the 1980s, uh, he had to uh, deal with uh, uh, basically uh, was a riot from uh, an officer-involved shooting in 1989. When I was a commissioner, uh, we had to fire a police chief because there were seven officer-involved shootings of African Americans in one year. Um, and so we've, we've established a very, very uh, strong uh, bond with the community uh, as a result of some of these events. Our police chief, who is phenomenal, um, has also uh, been focused uh, tremendously on uh, growing those bonds and, and, and implementing a community policing model uh, that has strengthened the relationship between the police and our community. We had a press conference on both Saturday and on Sunday uh, with community leaders and members of the pastoral uh, community, members of the faith-based community, urging people to protest peacefully and not to engage in the kinds of things that we were seeing throughout the country, and that obviously helped. You did something that I found just stunning. You gave out your cell phone number and said, if anyone wants to talk to you and visit with you, 
uh, you were available. Uh, I mean, I've never heard of a mayor of a small town doing that, much less a, a city the size of Miami, a major American city. How did that turn out? How many calls yeah. did you get on your cell phone when you did that? I got about five. Got about five hundred uh, text messages from people who um, either want to say thank you for the leadership that we've displayed and the way that Miami has been a national model, or people giving us really concrete examples, wanting to get together and really want to roll their sleeves up. I think the issue here is, Governor, and I know you know this uh, from uh, you know being a chief executive of your state, is you know there's 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 a time to talk, and there's a time for action, and I think. The big issue now is how do we translate this momentum for reform into actual reforms that heals our community and that makes uh, policing, which, by the way, has become increasingly and increasingly more difficult uh, with the, the, the bigger challenges that we throw on our police officers, um, the fact that they're under an intense amount of scrutiny. Um, and I'm not uh, in any way condoning uh, what happened in Minneapolis. Obviously, that was despicable. Um, but we have to continue to work hard to create the kind of policies that are going to uh, uh, promote peace instead of violence. What have you done in policing policies in Miami that are dramatically different than other cities? Because we see riots and looting, and, and in some cities, the mayors have basically told the police to stand down and to let it go, and that seems only to encourage more of it. You have not had that problem in Miami. There's been protests, they've been peaceful, and it's largely been contained. Uh, obviously, some different kind of decisions are being made in terms of police tactics. Tell us what you're doing that might help some other mayors and governors uh, for their states and cities. It's an incredibly delicate balance. Uh, you have to balance never losing control of your city, uh, not letting uh, people uh, damage or burn symbols uh, that uh, you know sort of promote lawlessness or chaos or anarchy, um, but at the same time, you want to give people the space to um, express their very, very valid frustrations and anger and emotions. And so we did that on Saturday. We changed tactics from Saturday to Sunday. On Saturday, what we did was we held our, our police officers that were in riot gear, basically protecting the police department. Um, one of the things that we unfortunately had to do because we, we left some cars exposed, we did have to use tear gas on Saturday. Um, we didn't use it on Sunday. And what we saw was not using it on Sunday uh, and instead using these um, a pretty uh, amazing bike patrols that we have that actually serve. Uh, they, they do an incredible function. They create like a fence, and then and then they penetrate and fence and penetrate and fence. And they did that uh, very effectively. We removed the symbols uh, on Sunday so that there was nothing that, that anyone can rally around and destroy as a means of of, of displaying uh, lawlessness or anarchy or chaos. Um, and so that allowed the protesters to focus on what they were there to do, which was protest and not. Uh, riot or, 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 or destroyed property. Mayor, I have a better understanding of why you got elected with 86% of the vote, which <laughs> is just stunning. Uh, but your leadership is a remarkable, a remarkable example of how it can and should be done. And we're so grateful to have you here. And, and I want to add one final word. My experience is that the Cuban Americans in the Miami area are the most freedom-loving people I've ever met in my entire life. And they understand the joy, the gift of freedom in a way that I wish every American did. And I'm so grateful for the example that we have from the Cuban-American community. So grateful to you, Mayor. It is an honor to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Governor. The honor is mine. You're absolutely right about the Cuban-American people when something has been taken from you um, and, and has been replaced by this evil ideology of communism. 
Um, it's, it's very easy to love and thirst for democracy and freedom, and that's something that we have exemplified uh, for now a second generation here. I'm the first Miami-born mayor. My dad was the first Cuban-born mayor. Mm. You can keep up with Mayor Suarez on social media, at Francis Suarez, as well as his official account, at Miami Mayor. Hey, we got a great show coming up, and Keith Bilbrey is right here to tell you all about it. Go ahead, Keith. Well, tonight, civil rights activist Jack Brewer and marriage wisdom from Matt and Lisa Jacobson. Later, Huck's hero, Jay Dan Gum, and country music star, Steve Warner. It's all coming up on Huckabee. Next week, Dinesh D'Souza on how to stop the United States of Socialism. And bluegrass dynamic duo Daly and Vincent perform. And welcome back. Jack Brewer is a businessman, a philanthropist, and a former professional football player. He's fought on the gridiron in business, and now he fights to bring people together. He believes we need spiritual leadership to defeat the evil of racism in a very divided America. Would you please welcome a dear friend, the CEO of the Brewer Group, Jack Brewer. Jack, thanks for joining us. Happy to have you with us. Such an honor, Governor, such an honor. I know that you played football for the Minnesota Vikings. You went to school in Minnesota. So uh, this is an area near and dear to your heart. You've seen some awful things happen there with the murder of George Floyd. Before we get into all of the the big picture, I want you to talk about how you react personally to what you see going on in Minneapolis. You know, Governor, it's tough, man. I, um, you know, I grew up around extreme racism, real racism. Um, When I was 13 years old, there was a fraction of the skinheads that moved into my town um, that proceeded with violence and threats against me and my family and uh, some of my close black friends. Uh, actually, one of my good black friends ended up having to to shoot a skinhead at his home who was breaking into his house mm. to defend himself. And so, you know, I've been through all of that, man. And, you know, there was a time in my life where I hated white people. I didn't want to be around them uh, during during this situation. The Klan, the Klan came to my town and had a rally. Uh, my dad went there to protect me. Um, and you know what? But, you know, after all of this stuff went on, uh, it was the white community that got around my family. It was the, the Christians and the believers that got around my family and actually pushed my city to, to change the laws and to get rid of uh, these evil people um, from our city. And so I learned something then. I learned that, you know, through God, we can all come together because, you know, that breaks the, bar- the barriers of race. And so, you know, I experienced these things. I have a, a 21-year-old son uh, and I fear for him going to the store sometimes at certain times of night or walking around the streets. Uh, I was talking to my wife the other day, you know, su- subconsciously when I'm walking around my neighborhood, which is a pretty a nice neighborhood, you know, I, I make a point to raise my hand up and, and wave at my neighbors and say hi because I don't want them to think I may be some black man walking around uh, the street and be a threat to them. And so I, I have to admit, I think about those things too. And I think black Americans do. Um, but through all of this, I think, uh, more of our white brothers and sisters and, uh, are understanding, uh, the plight of the black man and really what we have to see and, and think about during our everyday, uh, journey. Um, but no matter what happens, 
uh, I think it all goes back to spirituality and it all goes back to, to having our brothers and sisters in Christ because through that, uh, we can break all these barriers. Jack, I think it's important when you talk about the spiritual nature of, uh, of, of ending racism, because I don't think it's a matter of just simply sitting down and having people uh, look at each other and having a conversation. If, if our hearts aren't changed, uh, it's, it's hard That's to right. see that people can really love. But if, if once our hearts are changed, we say, you know, God made this person as much as he made me. He can't love them more. He can't love them less. Uh, but you're one of the few voices I know that is unapologetic in saying that it's a spiritual problem and it has to have a spiritual solution. Now, I know you're in business. You're not a preacher. It's not like you're pastoring a big church and that's why you say these things. Uh, you're a very effective, successful businessman, entrepreneur, but, but you say it with boldness. Why are you f so willing to say that when so few are? I truly believe what, what Jesus says. And when you look at it and you see people hurting, uh, the Bible teaches us to comfort our neighbors as Christ comforted us. Uh, and so I take that to heart and I, I try to look at the root of issues. I don't try to focus on just the evilness that goes around. I, I try to look at what causes the evilness. Uh, and if we all want to be blunt here in America, what's causing our evil is the fact that we're not spending enough time with our underserved. We have to go into the communities, not just the communities of folks that look like us, but we have to go into the underserved communities. And what you will find is in America, oftentimes those are black people. Uh, and so the Bible teaches us to go out and serve the poor uh, and, and help the, the brokenhearted uh, and, and go after the orphaned. Well, in black America, unfortunately, almost 70% of our kids are born in fatherless homes. Is that an issue for just black men like me to take on? No, that's an issue for people like Mike Huckabee to take on and other, other leaders uh, in the white community because that's what Christ told us to do. Uh, you know, with your background in uh, finance and uh, uh, understanding how the economy works, we've been through a tough year. The economy virtually shut down for three months because of coronavirus. How do you see us getting back and what steps has the president made or should make to get us back where our economy is, is fully functioning? You know, I take it back to my old coaches. You know, whenever, you know, we're, we're down by three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, you know, you want your coach telling you you can still win the ball game. And I think President Trump uh, has done that for our economy. Uh, I think, you know, the, some of the things that we need to do fundamentally uh, is, you know, I don't really like the fact that folks right now, a lot of folks right now can make more money not working than they were making when they were working. Uh, I think that's an issue. I think that can hurt us if we don't do something about that quickly. Uh, I think some of the things that he, 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 he did with immigration uh, to make sure that he protects American jobs were critical, particularly critical uh, for some of the underserved communities that we just mentioned. Um, but I think if he continues to, to speak boldly uh, and, and build up the confidence in people, I think our economy will, will emerge back much quicker than people actually thought that it would. Uh, because fundamentally, as we all know, you know, all the pillars of our, in our economy are there. You know, we, we, we have solid, solid structure. I'm, I think manufacturing now uh, in America is going to give us that long-term 
uh, gain in the economy just because, you know, we've all witnessed and seen what the effects of having China produce all of our goods. I mean, even our, our critical goods that we need to survive, uh, like health care and like our, our, our medical products, are all being made in China. I think the more we focus on bringing those things back to America, uh, the more solid our foundation and our economy for the long term will thrive. Jack, I can say one thing. You are a winner in whatever you have done and continue to do. And I'm so grateful to have you here. Thanks, Jack Brewer, for joining us. Let me say to our audience, if you want to keep up with Jack Brewer, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell you exactly how you can do it. Well, it would be my pleasure. You can follow Jack on social media at Jack Brewer, BSI, and visit thebrewergroup.com to discover all the good work the Brewer Group is doing. Coming up, a hundred ways to love your husband or wife from Matt and Lisa Jacobson and Grammy Award-winning artist Steve Warner joins us. More Huckabee is on the way. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. Matt Jacobson is a former publishing executive, pastor, and founder of FaithfulMan.com. His wife, Lisa, is an author, speaker, and founder of club31women.com. Together, they are sharing how you can make your marriage a happy one that might even last. We welcome to the show the authors of 100 Ways to Love Your Wife and 100 Ways to Love Your Husband, Matt and Lisa Jacobson. Hey, we're delighted to have you here. You know, we've been practicing this social distancing thing. Absolutely. But you're married. Matt, oh, it's okay if you, you sit be okay. By yeah, it's okay. <laughs> All right, Go ahead. Hey, Go I ahead. like that better. Now, Lisa may object. I don't know. <laughs> she hasn't for a number of years. So. Well, it's a good thing. I mean, how would you have written these books if you objected to being together? Right. We were very together. <laughs> you know what I found about the books? They're very practical. Absolutely. So this is not a deep thinking kind of, uh, oh, my gosh, i got to get to chapter five. Yeah. Tell me about how you came up with the concept. Well, we were uh, sitting together in a cafe and just enjoying a moment after 25 years of marriage. And, and we were just talking about how much of marriage is really made up of a lot of very small moments and decisions. And we don't think of it like that. We usually think of the big things, the big yeah. conversations. But really, a lot of the things that we enjoy after 25 years were just those cups of coffee together or those moments of forgiveness or the moments of just being kind to one another. Now, what's the hardest single thing for a man to do? with loving his wife. You know, there's an interesting verse, actually, in the Bible that says, live with your wife according to knowledge. And so studying your wife, who is she? What, what is the thing that, she, that just speaks to her heart? What is the thing that makes her delighted? And then the other thing, too, is being intentional and purposeful. Because one thing that is true of every woman, she never stopped desiring to be desired. Mm. And so where's your focus? Where's your motivation? That's what these books do. They just give you practical things to do each day. And really a beautiful marriage is made up of a lot of, a lot of everyday moments that say, I love you 
rather than moments that say, I love me. Lisa, did you kind of help draft some of the 100 things for, for Matt and say, hey, pal, this would really <laughs> be a good one? No, we literally went to separate sides of the cafe and started writing and then later looked at each other. Are you no, serious? Yeah, exactly serious. what we did. Yeah. You know, I, I think what's so powerful about the books, 100 Ways to Love Your Wife, 100 Ways to Love Your Husband, and I'm going to open it up because I want our audience just to kind of see that uh, it's almost like a picture book without the pictures. In other words, you don't have to dig deep into the prose. And it's things like number 43, you were made strong for a reason. So act like a man and shoulder your responsibilities. Uh, a lot of them have scripture verses attached to them, not all of them, but, but it's practical stuff and it's simple. It's and it's practical. like you read it, you stop, you pause, you think about it. I mean, obviously it was very intentional to make this a book that you could study a book that you could uh, enjoy, but it's not going to weight you down with, with heavy stuff. We give you practical ideas. Absolutely, and the thing is, we just forget that building a relationship is about thinking about the other person, what's meaningful to that other person, and it's just as simple as when you're walking through the door at the end of the day, to speak in a loving way to each other instead of carrying the weight of the world and coming in with that dark cloud hanging right above your brow, seeking out your wife, loving her with your eyes, letting her know you're just glad to see her. And it doesn't matter where your marriage is. We have people that are newlyweds. We have people that have been married for 40 years take these books and say, you know, I just started applying these things and it has made such a big difference in our marriage. Give me a couple from okay. your side All of right. how to love your wife. Okay. And then I'm gonna ask Lisa the same question. Just, okay. there's a hundred. I'm not gonna ask you to name a hundred. Mm -hmm. Sure. But give me two that okay. you think are most important. I'll think, I'll, I'll mention two. So first of all, when was the last time, and your wedding day doesn't count, when was the last time that you just lingered over a kiss in the morning with your wife and you just kissed her with intention, you held her close and she just felt the power of your conviction, I love you, mm -hmm. and you made it last for seven, 10 seconds. When was the last time you did that? Because she never got tired of, get, of being kissed the way you kissed her on your wedding day. Another thing is, when was the last time you took your wife on a date and you protected that date time from all of the other, mm. uh, you know, uh, other competing things in life that constantly push that to the side? We can take each other for granted so easily. What, what about uh, what you think women should know about loving their husbands? Well, one of the things that, that was really brought to light to me is I was actually, it was when we were living in Nashville and we were at a, a, a cafe. <laughs> I do that a lot, I guess. <laughs> and um, Matt and I were just talking and I was kind of heavy telling him about all the kids and how, you know, how hard it was. And, and a girlfriend of mine walked by, I just happened to be walking by and I jumped up and I just smiled at her and I gave a big hug. I'm like, oh, hi, you know, and da 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 da, -da you know. And then it's like, oh, okay, I gotta go back. And I went back down to sit down with Matt and he just kind of had this sad look on his face. And he said, I wish you would do that for me. Wow. And I really purposed from then on to try to light up when he walked into the room, which sometimes women laugh at me for that. You know, they're yeah. like, oh, that's kind of, well, what if you're down or what? I'm like, no, I'm honest. But, but it speaks so powerfully to him that I'm just so happy to see him, no matter where we're at or what yeah. we're going through, that um, he's my man, you know? Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. And, and so simple. Mm -hmm. That's what that's I love about the books. They're yeah. simple, practical, useful things that every couple can put. You have other series. 100 Ways to Love Your Daughter, 100 Ways to Love Your Son, mm -hmm. and 100 Words of Affirmation for Husband. 
an affirmation for wife. Yeah. You guys got a hundred ways to do a lot of things. <laughs> we got a hundred ways to tell people how to get these books, which by the way, I hope you will do. Hmm. I truly believe it will bless your marriage, bless your life, bless your parenting. And uh, I think you're gonna enjoy how just useful they can be in day-to-day -day living. That's what I love about them. All right, Keith, I know that there are newlyweds and some longtime couples out there who might want some more information on the advice of the Jacobsons. Why don't you help them and tell them where they can get these books? Well, I think I can. 100 Ways to Love Your Wife and Husband are available separately or bundled at Amazon or your favorite bookseller. And for all their devotionals, podcasts, and much more to help build strong, happy marriages, visit faithfulman.com and club31women.com. Next, meet forgiven felons who are changing their world. Later, country music star Steve Warder is right here on Huckabee. And welcome back. Well, environment and relationships can be the deciding factor in whether a released convict goes straight or returns to prison. My next guest is a former felon, or rather, a forgiven felon. And his mission is what makes him tonight's Huck's hero. On May 21st, 2003, they, they bring me from the county jail and they read my, the judge reads my sentences for my fourth and fifth DWI. I was, I was gonna do prison time. I was such, in such a bad place that even the tears of my dad and my sisters who were sitting in the courtroom when they read five years for the fourth DWI, five years for the fifth DWI, the tears of my family didn't even move me. About a month later, I was sent to prison. On September 18th, 2003, I got into a fight and got locked up in solitary confinement for eight days. And, and it was those eight days where my life was changed. Every day I had, it seemed like I had a different conversation with God. And after those eight days, the first thing he had me do was become mentored. Then after about a year and a half, he flipped it and had me mentoring other guys in prison. And so I knew what whatever I was doing in prison is what I was gonna do when I got out. First thing I did within the first six months was file a DBA, start Forgiven Felons Ministry, and we began discipling and mentoring and preaching. Same thing I was doing when I left prison, and I began doing it out here. Even when I was in my room or my, my cell one, one year praying, and I said, Lord, you want me to do all these things, but I have this word felon attached to my name the rest of my life. It's gonna be a hard road ahead with that label. Is there anything you can do to get rid of that label? He said, I want you to embrace it, but not be identified by it. And there's a difference between embracing something and, and letting it identify you. And so he said, from this day forward, don't call yourself a felon, call yourself a forgiven felon. Well, Jay Dan Gum runs a large ministry both inside and outside prison, and his impact is so great, there's an upcoming documentary just released on Roku about his life. Jay Dangum, welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, 
your life was messed up, man. <laughs> yes. So yes. how did you get to that place when, and it just came crashing and you ended up going to prison? Well, you know, 13 years old, took my first drink of alcohol. Hmm. Uh, and that, that's what led me down the road in the documentary. This is one decision can change the, the, the whole direction of your life. Hmm. And it did that one day. I mean, minor in possession, public intoxication. Uh, got my first two DWIs in the same week because I'm an overachiever. <laughs> and, uh, and by the one year, I just, I got another fourth and fifth DWI. And then I was sitting there in the courtroom. Uh, my dad and, and two sisters were sitting in the courtroom and the judge said, um, I don't see a very bright future for Mr. Gum. Uh, and wow. I got those transcripts where he said that. And he was right at that time. Yeah. He was right if I didn't change anything. And then well, I got to prison and. You get to prison. And did you think this is it? This is my life? I, you know, I, I, I really did. I just got in. I got right in with the game. I was gambling. I was, you know, I was just hanging out with, you know, in prison, it's all segregated, you know, just start hanging out, you know, with, uh, with, with the white people. But then I got into a fight and on September 18th, 2003, and at 9 a.m. Mm. And it was quiet the whole day. That day, every right, every piece of property, everything I had, on this earth was stripped away from me. And I was in a six by nine cell and it was, it was quiet all day. It was silence until about 10 PM. And I could hear the sound of crying. It was my own crying. And that's when I feel like the, the love and grace and mercy of God just, just came into that cell. And I felt like I came out of solitary confinement and I felt like there was something done in me that I'd never felt before. Yeah. And then the next three or four months, he said, now I want you to work on your profanity and your gambling. And, and so what he showed me was sometimes he's going to deliver us out of something, but sometimes, man, he loves to partner with us and walk us through stuff. You started an organization, Forgiven Felon. I mean, I think this is an important message for people because your life proves there's no such place that God can't find you and there's no such person that God gives up on you. Yeah. And that's what Forgiven Felon is all about. You're, ab you're absolutely right. You know, and, and it came, it, before it was the name of our ministry, it was a, it was a mindset change. Huh. I said, God, how am I gonna do this with this label? How am because I gonna do it? Because you carry that the rest of your I, life. Less, rest of my life. It don't, it don't matter if I get expunged, there's always a paper trail with that label on me. And I said, what am I, how am I gonna do all this with that label? There's gonna be obstacles in the way because of it. And he said, kind of like, I mean, I'm not putting myself in their category, but kind of like the same way he changed everybody's name in, in the Old Testament, New Testament, from, from Simon to Peter, from Jacob, all these things. He said, today, you're, you're no longer gonna be called felon. Because in, in, in English, noun, felon's a noun. You can't change the definition of a noun, but you can change the way you look at that noun hmm. by putting an adjective in front of it. Hair, yeah, brown hair, gray hair, no hair. <laughs> Those adjectives describe that noun. And he yeah. said, today, you're no longer a felon. You're a forgiven felon. And that adjective is going to change the way people and yourself see you, that word felon. This must have a profound impact on the people you encounter who are themselves yeah. felons. Yeah. The, 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 the hardest thing to do when guys come out of prison is to change their mindset because they've been known as a number. Yeah. They've been told where to go, what to do. They have no identity. And so the, the devil is the greatest identity thief ever. And so to try to put that, in, when you get out society, you're known as a felon. Parole calls you a felon. Parole, everybody, you go, everywhere you go, apartment complexes, they, they're like, oh, you're a felon, you can't live here. Churches find out sometimes yeah. and they're like, oh, you know, we can't really, you know, and, and I hate to say it, but there are some churches that don't want felons in their church. Mm. 
But what a shame, but I'm glad you have got an opportunity not only to help the people who have become forgiven felons, but also maybe to help churches understand, yeah, yeah. love people. Educate them. God yep. forgives them, everybody Amen. should. Amen. Jade Angum, thank you for being here. What a great story. There's a reason that we wanted you to be Huck's hero tonight. Hey, Keith, tell our viewers how they can learn more about our tonight's Huck's hero, Jay Dan Gum, and his wonderful organization, Forgiven Felons. To find out more about Forgiven Felons and to listen to Jay Dan's podcast, visit ForgivenFelons.org. You can find the Sagu Cinema documentary, Forgiven Felons, live now on Roku at the RokuChannel.com. Next, Grammy Award-winning artist Steve Warner and his remarkable career in country music. More Huckabee is just 60 seconds away. Welcome back. Big hand for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. Well, there would have been a big hand if we had the audience here, and they're coming back. Hopefully, somewhere near the end of June, we're going to start having audience again here in our theater, and I can't wait. Boy, we have missed having you here. Well, Steve Warner has 14, that's a lot, 14 number one hit songs. He's got four Grammy Awards. He's a member of the Grand Ole Opry. He has written hits for... Well, maybe some people you haven't heard of. People like Garth Brooks and Keith Urban and Clint Black, just to name a few. But I'm dropping some big names. Hey, <laughs> it's his heart for people that earned him the Mini Pearl Humanitarian Award. And that may be his biggest accomplishment. Please, delighted to welcome Steve Warner to the show. Steve, thank you for coming. Governor, good to see you again. Okay, no, so we got to get you back. When the audience is back, have you play with the full band? I would love it. Love, I'll love play it. bass with you the whole thing. Love to do that. You started as a bass player, right? I did. I started out a young little guy. Dottie West heard you at what, age 17? 17. Hired I met you? Dottie West and she uh, Unreal. hired me and uh, I drove 100 miles an hour to get home and tell my mom and dad to wake them up at 3 in the morning, you know. <laughs> I'm moving to Nashville. <laughs> well, I'm sure they were say, thrilled <laughs> at 3 a.m. My dad was really happy because he was a musician. My mom was like, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. You're, you're not going anywhere, you know, but. Great times, you know, working with Dottie West, three years of uh, my schooling with her. You know, she was a wonderful lady, a wonderful teacher. Taught me a lot about not only songwriting and <clears throat> having a, you know, working with a band, the dynamics of having, a, a, you know, relationships with players on the road and that kind of stuff. Uh, and also we did, we were immediately on Europe tours and doing shows with Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson, played the Astrodome. Uh, at that time, right after I went to work for her. And so it was really a, a eye-opening experience. You know, uh, you're one of those guys that could play pretty much any instrument on the stage and probably better than the person I whose try, instrument you I took. I try to. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's one of the things. You were inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame by Garth Brooks. By the way, that museum, oh, I think, is the most it's, it's awesome. untold story in Nashville. I tell people when they say, I'm coming yeah. to Nashville, what should I see? Yeah. I said, there's a gazillion things, but don't miss the Musicians Hall of Fame. I love you saying that because I love it because it covers all kinds of music. It's, yeah. And I love the Country Music Hall of Fame, don't get me wrong. It's 
it's iconic and it's wonderful. But I love it that you have the New Orleans jazz, you have that Memphis soul music, and you have everything. You know, the Jimi Hendrix exhibit there is just phenomenal. You have to see it. It's an experience. You walk in, I mean, absolutely. A, a pun intended, yeah. I guess. You walk into the <laughs> Jimi Hendrix experience and it's it's just incredible. And But anyway, yeah, that's, to be in that those hallowed uh, walls there at the, you know, I still don't believe it in a lot of cases. I go, wow, how did I get in this place? But I'm really grateful. Uh, you know, a lot of people deserve it more, but nobody can be more grateful than I am to be in there. And to be in there with these uh, iconic people is so great. You have uh, had such a career, musician, but one is songwriter. You've written songs for basically everybody we've all heard of. Is it hard to write a song that you gave birth to and basically say from the nursery, here you go, you raise this song and, and, and take it away? The first experience I had, Bob Lumen recorded the first four songs I ever had recorded, I wrote, and I was in his band, so I had a little jump on him yeah. hearing my music, uh -huh. but he was making a new record, and what we cut it not far from here. It was at the House of Cash, and Bob Lumen's neighbor right here was Johnny Cash. This neighbor was Roy <laughs> Orbison, and Bob lived here. The three lived wow. their neighbors, and so we, Johnny Cash took Bob in to make his uh, comeback album after he was ill, and I played bass on that project, and at House of Cash, Johnny Cash, 1976, Johnny Cash producing. And uh, I remember coming into the control room and uh, Bob said he wanted to do four of my songs. And I said, well, I, he, I want you to sing these for John. And so I got on my knee and played one by one all four songs for Johnny Cash standing right there. <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. And, and Johnny, we became really good friends, you know, but uh, I did all four songs. And every time he would say, yeah, let's do it. I love it. Let's cut it. I was like, oh, I got my first cuts ever. And Bob Lumen cut my first cuts ever. And I pull in at a, at a strip mall place over in Antioch, and there's a cute girl that pulls in right beside me. It's summertime, her window's <laughs> down, and my song is on her radio, the one I wrote. You know? <laughs> so I didn't say anything, but I wanted to go, hey, I wrote that song. Oh, uh, Steve, you got to come back. Thank I'd love you. to. My pleasure. I'd the, love to come back. Governor. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Now, we didn't bring Steve just to talk. He's going to perform for us in a minute, and you're going to love it. But right now, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell the folks how they can get Steve Warner's music, which they will want to do. So uh -huh. listen carefully to Keith. Well, Mike, it's as easy as visiting stevewarner.com. That's where you can discover all of Steve's music, plus episodes of his Warner Wednesday online series. It's all at stevewarner.com. That's spelled W-A-R-I-N-E-R. Steve Warner is back to perform in 60 seconds, so don't go away. Now be sure to stay tuned for a final word from Mike coming up shortly, but right now, here's Steve Warner to perform the beloved song he made into a hit, Holes in the Floor of Heaven. Mr. Steve Warner. One day shine of eight years old When Grandma passed away I was a broken-hearted little boy Blowing out that birthday cake <laughs> 
how I cried when the sky let go with a cold and lonesome rain. Mama smiled, said, don't be sad, child, because Grandma's watching you today. Because there's holes in the floor of heaven and your tears That's how you know she's watching, wishing she could be here now. And sometimes if you're lonely, just remember she can see. There's holes in the floor of heaven, and she's watching Seasons go, seasons go, nothing stays the same. I grew up, fell in love, met a girl who took my name. Year by year, we made a life in this sleepy little town. I thought we'd grow old together Lord I sure do miss her now But there's holes in the floor of heaven and her tears are pouring down That's how I know she's watching wishing she could be here When I'm lonely I remember She can see There's holes In the floor of heaven And she's Watching Over you and me a shame her mom can't be here now to see her lovely smile they throw the rice I catch her eye as the rain starts coming down she takes my hand says daddy don't be sad cause I know mama's watching now And there's holes in the floor of heaven And her tears are pouring down That's how you know she's watching Wishing she could be here now And sometimes when I'm lonely I remember she can see There's holes in the floor of heaven Watching over you and me She's watching over you and me 
watching over you and me. She's watching over you and me. Well, it was great having Steve Warner here with us tonight and great having you here. I got to tell you, it's hard for me not to have some contempt for the news media, though. True journalism has pretty much died. We can't trust the media to get reliable information anymore because they no longer report the facts as they happen. They create a story that lines up with their own very narrow biases and beliefs and then they gather words and pictures just to make us believe it, whether it's true or not. It's why President Trump has called out many in the media as fake news, and he's used the incendiary term, enemies of the people, to describe some, not all, but some of them. If the news reporters intentionally mislead or slant a story by selectively and deceptively editing a story, or maybe fail to give it context, or outright misquotes the subjects of their story, they are the enemies of the people. And worse, they're the enemies of the truth and our democracy. We need the press, but only if they act with integrity. Too often, they simply don't. They should seek to inform, not inflame. Now, having been covered and quoted by the media for the past 30 years in politics, I've only seen a few true journalists. If I read a story about me, and yet I can't determine if the reporter likes me or not. Now that is a good reporter. I've had some through the years who have covered me and they've written thousands of inches of copy. And to this day, I don't know if they like me or not. I don't know whether they voted for me or not. Some of their stories weren't that favorable to me, but they were fair. And that's real journalism. When you read your own quotes in the paper and they make you mad, you weren't quoted accurately. When it's your own words, the only person to be mad at is yourself. That is, unless your quotes were not complete or contextual. When we're going through times such as these very divided moments, we need responsible press more than ever. But they're like fire. They can cook our food or they can burn our house down. Sadly, too many are burning our house down. And we hope that changes. Well, that's it for tonight. We are so glad you've joined us. And I want to say on behalf of a grateful team here in Nashville, we hope you have a safe and prosperous week. And until next week, thanks, good night, and God bless.